You know, we've been looking at the life of Jesus. We're going to do that again today. And some of the gospels, which are really like biographies that people that either walked with Jesus or knew people that walked with Jesus, and they wrote down what Jesus did. And we're going to discover again today, and being an uncommon friend, how often Jesus did that and what that looked like. And the reality is, is we want to live the same way. Just again, shout uncommon. Think about that word for a moment. What does it mean? It It's got a definition that really means something out of the ordinary, right? It's something that we don't ordinarily encounter. We, it's not routine. It's not common. Now, that can be kind of weird or awkward, too, but we're talking about it in this vein. I love the end of this, something special. And when you bring that together with an uncommon friend, we're, we're talking about being a people that would love people like Jesus did, that we would, we would follow his example and that we would love others in an unconditional and think about it in an uncommon way. Have you ever had somebody do something that was out of the ordinary for you? You know what I find about us? We're a little suspicious about people, aren't we? You know, last week, Pastor Mark, he, he preached a great word on just being an uncommon friend. And we talked about having um, really a common problem in the world. We've all got, we've all got problems, right? It's common to all of us, and those of us that know Jesus realized that there was a place where we discovered an uncommon friend in him. How many remember that you were surprised that he would love you in spite of what you'd done? He would forgive you in spite of the garbage that was in your life, and you really found something that was uncommon, unlike anybody else you knew. And with that challenge, Pastor Mark asked us last week to grab these little cards. They just say on there, just a little random act of kindness to say I care. It was really amazing. I, was, I believe God's doing something in our church, and I'll tell you why. I can't tell you how many times we've printed things, invitations, cards, and we throw thousands of them away in the recycling bin, and we could not even keep them in. Many of you last week couldn't get them because they were all gone. Because there's something we have in our heart just to say, I love you. And just something this simple. I, I was at the coffee, uh, I was at Starbucks a couple weeks ago and didn't have one of these, but there was three officers right behind me, and and I just remember saying to the, uh, the cashier, I want to buy their coffees. So then, but I realized I had to tell them too, you know, because they got to order, right? It's not like you can just order somebody, pay for somebody else's meal. And it was funny. What I find is when we try to do uncommon acts of kindness, people are suspicious and they kind of aren't used to getting it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? If somebody said, I want to buy your coffee, what's the first thing you think? What do you want from me? Come on, how many know what I'm talking about? And I remember having to almost argue with these officers. No, I just want to say thank you for your service to our community. But here's what was interesting. When they finally realized I had nothing I wanted from them, they came by and started a conversation to say thanks. And, man, we appreciate that. And, you know, they say often firemen are the ones everybody wants to show up. Policemen are the one nobody wants to show up. They just said, you know what, thank you. And I realized we have a world that really desires an uncommon friend. They need him in Jesus, and they also need it to be us. And you stop and you think about what we, Pastor Mark said, that we want to be as a church. I want you to throw this up on the screen. We would become uncommon people, building an uncommon church that unconditionally loves common people in uncommon ways. Would you do me a favor? Would you read that with me? Let, me? let me get your voice to exercise a little bit. And I want you to realize this is what we're believing for all of us. If you're part of my art church family, wave at me. Come on, is this us? This is our desire? Let's read it together. We would become uncommon people building an uncommon church that unconditionally loves common people in uncommon ways. Imagine what that would be like if we, we continued to just take a step. 
I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 3. Uh, you can also follow along with your notes in the bulletin. We've always got notes in there that you can follow on with fill-ins. Or you can go to the City Bible Church app. You can download that if you haven't. And there's also the, the notes are within there. You can actually keep those notes. But I want to talk today about how Jesus lived in a situation that if you've been in church, you've probably heard about. The woman at the well. But the reality is this story has so much depth to it. There's a lot of tension in it. There's a lot of things that we can apply to our life today. And much like the disciples, we're going to discover that we're often more like the disciples than we are like Jesus. But the reality is we need to learn to live more like Jesus does in, in the culture that we're in. And so we're going to pick this story up in verse 3. It says, he, everybody shout, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus uh, left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And I want you to notice verse 9. And he had to pass through Samaria. Just, just note that for a moment. And it says, so he came to the town of Samaria uh, called Sukkar, near the field where Jacob had given uh, his, to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, he was wearied from his journey. Now remember, he's not taking an Uber. He's not taking a plane. Jesus and the disciples, they're walking. So Jesus is tired. It says he sits down by this well. And it was about the sixth hour. We know that that's about noontime. It's in the heat of the day. So here we've got a picture. Let's just imagine this for a moment. It would be like we're walking from, C- from Portland to Seattle. Okay? And Jesus says that he has to go through Samaria. Now, the reality is, is that the disciples are not excited about this journey. You ever notice Jesus has always taken the disciples on these funny little journeys? And he does it because he has a person or a situation he's going to connect with the disciples have no clue to. Remember when he takes the disciples across the lake and all they do is they come to find this man who's demon-possessed, Jesus frees him. They basically talk to the city, they get back in the boat, and they encounter a storm going back. And I imagine them thinking, Jesus, couldn't you just have waved your wand and healed the guy from a distance? Instead, we got to go on this trip and get in a storm and cause us all kind of problems. Why does Jesus do that? Because he knows he's going to encounter somebody. And once again, here in this story... The disciples, they're not wanting to go to Samaria because Samaria is a place of pressure for them. It's a place of having to deal with people that they're at odds with. They don't like each other. This is like two gangs that fight with each other. They don't want to have dinner in their restaurant. They don't want to have to drink from their wells. They don't want to have to even have conversations with these people. And there was actually a much easier path going from, from Judea to Galilee. It wasn't that Jesus had to go there because it was the only route. He had to go there because he knew what was going to happen. And Jesus is going to take these disciples on a journey to cause them to deal with how they look at people. The reality is is that they're in the heat of the day. The disciples, Scripture tells us, they've gone off to find food. They're hungry. And so they've gone into the town. And verse 7, it just simply says, A woman from Samaria came to the water, to the well. So in our day and age, we probably wouldn't think about it much, but here we have about a half a mile out of town in Jacob's well. The well still exists to this day. There's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She comes upon this well, and the only person there is Jesus, who she can tell is a Jew. I find what's so interesting is, is why this woman's probably at this well. This woman is 
could go to a well that was closer to the house. They know where this well is. There was wells in the city. Why did she not go to a well near her own home? Why would she walk a mile round trip to get water out of the city? And why would she come in the heat of the day? Because, because normally while women are oftentimes who carried the water, they would come in the evening in the cool of the day when it wasn't so hot to carry the water. We know a little bit later that this woman had many husbands and lived an immoral life. It seems to me that this is a woman who's trying to escape. I wonder if she's trying not to run into a woman of maybe one of the husbands that she's, she's committed adultery with. I wonder if she is a lot like us, hiding from guilt and shame and probably even ticked off that there's somebody at the well she's now got to deal with. She, she's not looking for a divine encounter, but, but Jesus is. I wonder if she even had this thought, <laughs> I hope nobody else from the city comes out because if they tell Jesus who I am, or she doesn't know who it is yet, but if they tell this man who I am, he's going to shun me like everybody else. I wonder if she's thinking, if you only knew who I was, you would actually walk away. How many of us came to Jesus thinking that? So here we are. We're kind of in a moment of a lot of tension. She's coming to escape, and yet he comes to be an uncommon friend to her. And yep, while we're going to see that sin is a context and a challenge for her in her life, Jesus came knowing her sin knowing the challenges with her being a woman and a man in that day and age, and even the, the, the challenges they had in connecting Jews and Gentiles or Jews and Samaritans. I bet you came to that well feeling, if I could say it this way, marginalized because of her sin, because of her gender, because of her ethnicity. You know what it means to be marginalized? Hello. <laughs> I've just always wanted to do that. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> That's why I never bring my phone up here. Uh, marginalized. Think about this. I want us to ask ourselves a couple questions today in this message. Who are the marginalized people in my world? Who do I marginalize? What, gives, what causes that kind of a perspective in my world to think about people in a way that Jesus didn't think about them? And what do I need to do to get a right perspective, an uncommon perspective that would allow me to, to really be the hands and feet of Jesus to people around me? Here's what it means to be marginalized. When we marginalize someone, we, it's the way we treat a person or a group or a concept as insignificant or peripheral. Let's just take all the other terms for a moment, all the other terms you could think about of what separates people. Let's just think about it in this way. People that we... We tend to put aside. We tend not to value as much as we value ourselves. And I guarantee you that every single person in this room and listening to my voice, we do this with someone. Why? Because it's our human nature. Suddenly the room gets real quiet. (laughs) The reality is, is Jesus, he often reached the marginalized more than he reached the masses that were the common, if I could say. And the religious leaders of the day, they got so angry with this. And the average person just were befuddled by Jesus when you stop and think about who Jesus reached out to. And with people with sinful lifestyles that were so opposed to even the way Jesus would want them to live. You stop and you think about a woman caught in the very act of adultery and they're thrown at Jesus' feet. Why? Not so they could help her, but to condemn her and to catch Jesus. 
And the religious leaders are like, yep, that's the thing we're going to do. How about those who society marginalized? And you, Pastor Ken a couple weeks ago talked about how children were valued in the Roman culture. They were nothing more than property. And yet what Jesus said is, hey, don't stop the little kids from coming to me. Let them come. He gave value to children. Women were almost as, as just possessions in a lot of cultures in those days. And yet Jesus was a protector of women. I remember when a woman comes in and anoints him, and, and even the, the disciples and those religious leaders again in the room are, are rebuking her, and he says, you stop it, basically. Leave her alone. She's doing what God has asked her to do. And we find in Jesus, you want to talk about a superhero, defender of the weak, come on. Jesus is the one who reached out to those who were ostracized, put aside, and looked at as less than everybody else. Lepers? How many here are going to go lay your hands on a leper? Not in that day and age. And Jesus didn't just come to talk to him. He actually put his hand on him. The sick, the poor. You see, the challenge is, is we can't look at the life of Jesus without understanding our perspective has to change to be like his. Ever ask yourself why we marginalize people? If you're breathing air in your lungs, we all do it. I think some of it's just that we look on the outside a lot of times. You know, tattoos are common today, but I remember when tattoos seemed to mark you a certain way. I got kids with tattoos now. I actually thought about getting a tattoo, but I can't figure out what I would want on my body for the rest of my life and looking saggy. I even thought about putting one with Robin's name, but if she passes before I do, what do I do with that, right? I'd have to find another woman named Robin who is as good as this first Robin, and that'll never happen. <laughs> All the wives are thinking, how's he getting out of this one? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Gonna have to have them edit that one out. But don't we make judgments by how people look a lot of times? Maybe the way they wear their hair. I mean, have you ever thought this? That person doesn't fit them driving that car that they're driving. Right? I was watching American Idol last week, and we, we kind of like those. Uh, my kids and wife, they watch a lot of the music shows, and I love the beginning of American Idol. If you don't know what it is, it's just a singing competition where they're looking for the na- next great singer. And there's three judges, and this young guy comes out, and he's 16 years old. And, and if I could say it this way, he looks more like a a uh, computer programmer than he does the next singer that's going to be popular, if you get my drift. And he comes out and he begins to talk and they ask him what he's going to sing, what he wants to do. He says, well, he's got this funny voice. He says, well, I really, I love to sing and it's a great thing. And and they stop and say, is that your real voice? I mean, he looks like a computer programmer who's 16, but he's got a voice like a 12-year-old going through puberty. He says, yeah, I know people say that I have a funny voice and they kind of laugh. And he says, but this is my real voice. I'm not making it up. So you could tell they're like, well, this ain't going nowhere, right? I mean, how can a voice like that sing? And they they begin to have him sing, and he sings a Frank Sinatra song. And, I mean, the guy just, he just belts it out of the park, and it's fantastic. And you can kind of see the judge's eyes just kind of get big, and it's like, that was not what I expected. And see, oftentimes what's on the inside we determine is different than what, what was really there because we look on the outward. And we all do that. We all do that. We all make these judgments and we have perspectives. And it causes us a lot of times to lead to the secondary, which is, is if people are different than us. 
Now let me frame it in this way. Sociologists have, have talked about in-group and out-group biases, and our staff's been looking at this and beginning to learn. And all it means is this. If, if you have an, every one of us have an in-group, okay? So if I play golf, anybody play golf in the room, just wave at me. Well, you guys are like scared to say you play golf. <laughs> Boldly raise your hand and proudly say you play golf, even if you stink at it. Okay. Mini golf. You can play mini golf. That's fine. I don't get a lot of talk back from the Congress. Mini golf you can play. How many have never played golf, never been on a golf course, know nothing about it? Wave boldly at me. Okay, see, everybody who plays golf, because I play golf poorly, but I play, you're in my in-group, right? We have a language we understand. There's a, there's a culture that goes with golf, right? There's expectations. I know what's going to happen when I show up the golf course. I, I know that when I'm playing golf with Tim Nashif, who's an amazing golfer, when I say to him, hey, did you get a birdie on that last hole? He knows what I mean. And if you've never golfed, you're thinking, what kind of birds build nests in the ground? Right? If I were to invite you for the first time, and it's a hot day, it's 100 degrees out, and you show up and cut off jeans, flip-flops, and a tank top, I know that you're going to be in trouble because the golf culture says you got to wear a collared shirt, nice shorts, and golf shoes. How many understand what I'm talking about? And we've all got in-groups, and if you're not in the in-group, then you're in the out-group. We all got them. We got them based on how we were raised, maybe the church we were in. Think about the first time you came to City Bible Church. If this wasn't what you're used to, you had to move from being an out group to the in group. And there were some things you, I remember the first time I saw hands raised, it's like, you know, has everybody got a question? You know? I mean, you kind of got to get used to the culture you're in. First time I went over it was Stephen Beth, our missions pastor. We went to one of our foreign countries. And I'll never forget, I came out of the bathroom, a public bathroom, and there's a lady who is screaming at me. She is irate. I mean, I, I'm... I'm not sure what she's going to do to me, and I have no idea what I've done. And fortunately, Beth was with uh, Beth and Steve were with me, and she comes running over. I didn't realize you had to pay to use a public toilet there, and this lady's fortune was amassed from uh, people using her toilet. Man, I remember I didn't. I felt vulnerable. I felt I felt like I'd done something wrong. I felt everybody's looking because she's hollering at me. And the hard part is because I don't even understand the language. I didn't even know what I had done wrong. Here's the thing I want us to take away from, think about your in-groups. They're really easy for us. When you're in the in-group with somebody, you tend to give people a lot more grace. When you all understand the why, you kind of work together easier. But if somebody's different than you, what I find is we tend to judge them a lot quicker when we don't understand them. And when we don't know what's on the inside, we only look on the outside. And we begin to just look at what their differences are from us. We have a far less grace, and so we tend to make judgments a lot quicker with people. Does that resonate with anybody? And you begin to look at all of our, our differences. That's why there's so much conflict and strife mixed with a brokenness of humanity called sin that we all have. Selfishness is just like fire underneath all the differences. And that's what you begin to realize is all throughout scriptures, the disciples had this wrong perspective. It's amazing to me that, that really when we begin to marginalize people, we begin to diminish their value in our eyes. We even see this in the disciples a little bit later in the scripture. Uh, we'll come back to it, but the woman is, is at the well. Her and Jesus have had a full conversation the disciples come back, they see them talking, and you know what they say? Why is he talking to that woman? 
It isn't, I wonder what's going on in her life. I wonder what the master's doing to help her. It's just a simple judgment. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. He's, he's a teacher. He's a rabbi. In fact, I wonder if Jesus is doing something improper because he shouldn't be talking to a woman all by himself. They actually judged even Jesus and his heart based on not knowing what was going on in the heart of Jesus. Man, it's really a wake-up call for a lot of us to realize how easy it is for us to do that. It might be the difference of the color of our skin, but how many times more is it just the differences that we don't even perceive that are more subtle that we tend to let rifts come between us? And so we see what Jesus begins to do. You see, the perspective that we have, let me just ask you a couple real questions. Do you look at people that are different you that have a different view of sexuality, gender, and marriage? Does that begin to make you minimize their value to God and to you? We've got differences, and I'm not talking about rights and wrongs in the moment. I'm talking about a heart of unconditional love. People that don't believe the way we do, and I think even as Christians, we have created a lot of our own problems by not loving people the way Jesus did many times. And do we just come with this aspect to say whether you believe like I do or you don't believe at all, you still have value to God and you have value to me. How about those who have less than we do, how easy it is to judge sometimes? Or those who have a lot more than we do that we also can judge? This was an area that was hard for me. I remember, um, you know, I'm a pretty pragmatic guy. I, I, I tend to think processes and I remember the Lord dealing with me about how I viewed homeless people. And the reality is he didn't deal with me in a sense of he came and gave me a story. He brought me a person. He brought me a person named Adam. Adam, he was a guy that was about six foot four, about 300 pounds. He was the biggest guy. <laughs> and uh, I remember leading him to the Lord. They came to our church at 217 and, and began to build a real relationship with him. I remember... Just really, he became a close friend. He was like part of our family. He would barbecue for my kids' birthdays and him and his wife and, and a little son. Over a period of time, his wife made a decision she didn't want to be in the marriage any longer and she left him. And I watched Adam begin to spiral emotionally. One day he made a really poor decision and quit his job. And I watched him begin to lose his home and moved into a smaller place and his wife had left him, him and his son and... You know, before you know it, it, how many know that sometimes one bad decision leads to another? Struggling to find a job, and we helped him with food. We found him a place to live for a season, him and his son. But ultimately, he got a job in a bar. It was where he found a place. Because of his size, he was a bouncer. And before you knew it, he was, he was addicted to cocaine. He lost his son and ended up on the streets. See, I watched a really good friend of mine who I love dearly and still love to this day. I watched him not be an issue to be solved, but a person to be loved. When I go by a homeless person now, or, and I still, I mean, I think there's a place that people need to take responsibility. That, isn't, that doesn't mean that doesn't need to happen. But I found that I had a somewhat of a judgmental heart a lot of times with people. They just need to get their act together. They just need to make change. I discovered how hard it is to be homeless and find a job because you don't have a shower every morning to take. I found how hard it is because you don't have an address where people can send paperwork to. I found how incredibly difficult it is once you're in a downward spiral to get out of that downward spiral. God didn't send me a scripture. He sent me a person. And I'll tell you what, honestly, to this day, I don't help every single person I see on the street. 
but I help every single one. The Lord says, that's the one I want you to help. I do give money sometimes on the corner, and that's still even there. I think, what are you going to do with that money? How many, how many think that? And there's times to be responsible. There's also times to say, if you're hungry, I'll go buy you a meal. And the reality is, is that we all have these biases. You've got them and I've got them. And I just want to go back and look at the rest of this story to just see what Jesus did because it's so beautiful and what he, he models again for us in an uncommon perspective that allows us to be a, a common, uncommon friend like Jesus was. And the first thing I realize is that he just had an uncommon desire to approach people. I mean, Jesus is one gutsy guy, you got to admit. Now, being the son of God, I think, does help a bit, right? I mean, that he fully knows everything does help a bit, but he's still modeling to us that we've got a desire to approach people. It simply says, here he is in this scenario, he's at the well, and here comes this woman, and he positioned himself. That's why he had to go to Sukkar, was not because he wanted to take a longer route, but he knew that he was going to approach a lady today who had a need. And as he comes to that well... He positions himself. He's just sitting there. He could have sat within 100 yards of there. He could have been back away from the well where she wouldn't even have to have the uncomfortable presence of Jesus in the spot. But instead, he goes right to the heart of the situation. And are we willing to get messy with people, approach people, and be approachable by people? I wonder even what our very characteristics of our personality lead people to either draw near to us or be pushed away by us. How many times do we need to leave our views out of things, not because we don't have a right to them, but maybe because they push people away from us? And I'm not talking about that. You've got a right to those things, but I'm saying at times they need to be secondary to the mission that, like Jesus had, I got to go because there's somebody God's got for me. He sat himself by a well, but it also led to this aspect that he was willing to engage her. <laughs> it just says that, a woman from Samaria came to the water, and what did he do? He talked to her. Imagine the tension of that moment, right? We don't understand. We think we got gender problems. They had gender issues back then. Even if you go back and look at the writings, they didn't consider women to have value. You were not supposed to speak to a woman. You couldn't be, if it was your wife or your daughter, you could talk to them. But other than that, you had nothing to do with the opposite sex. What does Jesus do? He just smashes the first gender barrier and he talks to her. And you notice what he says to her. Hey, give me a drink of water. I think if I was Jesus, I might have done something different. But he just kind of says, would you give me a drink of water? I need you to go to my next slide. And what he says is, uh, it says the Samaritan, excuse me, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And here's this woman's answer. She said, how is it that you, listen, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. There was every reason for Jesus not to engage with this woman. We've got gender problems. We've got ethnicity problems. Sounds a lot like our culture today, doesn't it? It sounds like a reading of America in 2018. And yet Jesus, what does he do? He doesn't back up. He doesn't lean away. He leans in, but he leans in with a purpose. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Huh. Think about this. Jesus willingly engaged knowing her race, her gender, and her sin. Right. He knows that she's been 
unfaithful to her husband. She knows that she's got either relationship problems at best or she's got sexual addiction at worst. We don't know exactly what it is. But he knows all of that and he chooses to start a conversation with her. And it led him, though, to probably one of the more unusual conversations between two people. He answered her. This is how he answered her question. Why are you talking to me? He said, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying it to you, give me a drink. You would ask him and he would give you living water. Jesus begins a conversation that she thinks we're talking about normal water. But Jesus is beginning to take it to a spiritual conversation. We know from even what what it says in the end of the scripture and what John says a little later in 9, when Jesus talks about living water, spiritual water, he's talking about eternal life. He's beginning to share with her good news. He's beginning to tell her that he loves her and he accepts her right where she's at. And he says everyone who drinks of this natural water, he's saying, will be thirsty again as they sit by this well. But whoever drinks of the water I will give will never be thirsty again. For the water I will give him will be in him a spring of living water welling up until eternal life. Do you know what I love about this? Here's our tendency a lot of times. Hey. God loves you. By the way, let me tell you what you got to change. Let me tell you what you've got wrong in your world. And then I'll tell you how God loves you and wants to unconditionally forgive and accept you. Is anybody's tendency in the room? <laughs> we see more what's wrong than who's right for their life. But Jesus, he just comes in to kind of open his arms to her. Someone who's been marginalized. Someone who her community's marginalized. Someone who the Jews have marginalized. Someone that men have marginalized. And by the way, many men have taken advantage of, most likely. And Jesus just begins to model this unconditional love, if I can say it that way. And I think it's interesting that Jesus is using this water as a metaphor of human desire. She's thinking of a natural thirst, and Jesus is saying, I recognize you've had a thirst to fill the hole in your life. You've used relationships to try to fill it. You've used sexuality to try to fill it. You've used different things to try to fill that hole. But nothing will ever fill that hole until you recognize that I am the Savior of the world. And I can bring wholeness to you. And I can bring life to you. What she came out to think she was going to quench in the natural, she had to step out of her everyday life to quench it spiritually to encounter an uncommon friend in Jesus. That's the heart that we all have to come back to in our own lives each and every day is Are we willing to love those who are different than us unconditionally? Because it's that unconditional love that builds a bridge to what Jesus did next, and that was he had a boldness to share uncompromising truth. You see, the reality is this truth is so necessary for people. I love this. I I think Jesus, I think he's got a little twinkle in his eye. They're having this discussion, and they, they go on to talk about This water a little more. And then Jesus says this. He says, hey, go and call your husband to come here. Can't you just see a little twinkle? I mean, he knows she's got what's going on. The woman answers him, she does what we often do. She doesn't lie, but she's not honest. My scripture went away. Oh, Jesus, help me. Help me. There we go. Don't take that one yet. What does she say? She says she doesn't lie, but she's not telling the truth. She says, I've got no husband. (laughs) I think he just kind of goes, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You, you've not had one. Let's see, there was Bob and Larry and there was Peter. and You had five of them, right? And even the one you have now is not your husband. And we don't know how to translate that, whether that means 
She's living with somebody who's not her husband or she's in a relationship with somebody who's somebody else's husband. And it really doesn't matter. It means her life is blown apart. Jesus, he comes and he doesn't just leave it at the love part. He, he uses love as a bridge to bring truth. And the reality is, is that Jesus did it in a few moments being the son of God, but sometimes that takes a journey for us. I know with my friend who cuts my hair, again, going there 15, probably 15 years. I go every three weeks. It, I look like a dandelion if I don't put product in, you know. I mean, it's a challenge. It grows real fast. I figure in the, you know, in all the years I've gone, every time I go, I pray this one prayer. God, today is today a, a show love day or is today a share truth day? Because here's what I realize about truth. Jesus said this. He said, when you know truth, truth sets you what? That's a great scripture to, to think about and write. But here's the reality. Without truth, it means that people are not aware of their sin. They're, they're not aware of their brokenness, and they're also not aware of even their need for a Savior in somebody so amazing as Jesus. Too many times I think that maybe we've seen people and we tend to react because we've seen times where people share only the truth without the love, which really becomes harsh. But to match what Jesus did, to let unconditional love be a bridge to uncompromising truth. Notice Jesus didn't say, well, sounds like you have relationship problems. He didn't say, sounds like, you know, there's some things we should talk about. Now, I realize timing is so critical in this. Jesus was the son of God. He knew exactly what to do in the moment. But I think we as a people need the direction and the leading of the Holy Spirit to know when those moments come. But we also need the boldness to speak truth. I think in our day and our age, the culture and our, the age that we live in causes us to want to back up from being willing to share the truth. And here's my question to you. Did the truth of your brokenness and your needing of a Savior, did it better you or help you in any way when you encountered Jesus or did it leave you worse? I think that every one of us, when we encountered our need for a Savior, led us to a place to discovering what true life could be like in Jesus Christ. And that's what begins to move us to a place of boldness. Willingness to approach people, desire to engage with them, in spite of our differences, in spite of how, whether they're in our in-group or out-group. An unconditional love that really is in our heart that leads to being able to share truth. You know, it's amazing what happened in the end of this story. The disciples come back and they just touch the tail end of a conversation they only see. They're actually judging Jesus. Why would he talk to her? questioning his motives. The woman goes back to the city. You know what's so interesting to me? She says, as she's realizing that Jesus might be the Messiah. Scripture tells us, she says, are you the Messiah? She says, I am the Messiah. She runs back to town. You know what she tells everybody? She doesn't tell them, I met a guy and he prayed for me. She says, I met a man and he told me everything I did. What's the only thing Jesus told her he did? He read her mail about her sin. And I'm amazed that it was truth that led her to a revelation of Jesus being the Messiah that came through love. It wasn't just love alone. The disciples, they're a lot like us, right? They're still struggling. 
They come back and we see this scripture and under this where I'm talking about just being a, an, an uncommon conviction to be an uncommon friend. And the disciples come back and now they're starting an awkward conversation. They just say, Rabbi, eat. But he says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I think, Jesus, what are you talking about? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Jesus just knew that he had to go to Samaria because he was going to encounter a woman to be an uncommon friend, to show her unconditional love as he engaged with her, to share uncompromising truth, that she would actually go back. Isn't it interesting? All the people that she was trying to hide from, she's now sharing with. I find that fascinating. She began to discover the living water that fills that hole that's within her that now the people she's avoiding in the past She's now exclaiming to them what God's doing for her. And by the tenor of this last part of Scripture, Jesus is saying, don't say this. There's four months and then comes the harvest. He says, look up. And commentators think that the disciples and Jesus were probably looking back at the road to Sukkar. As it says, villagers began to stream towards Jesus. And I believe it's when Jesus said, look up. I tell you, lift your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And he goes on to say that the harvest is people entering into the kingdom of God. See, we're just like the disciples. It's so easy to get our perspective wrong. As we talk about Easter coming up, we don't preach the gospel just on Easter. We do every single week, as you know. But there's also moments that we leverage in our society and the way culture is that we even want to be in tune with maybe what the Holy Spirit's saying in a special way. And every time that you just simply do an undeserved act of kindness. You're showing the love of God to somebody. Maybe it leads to the ability to have a conversation, have them at your home. Maybe every invitation we hand out to Easter is, is just that. It's, it's, it's preparing their heart for what God wants to do. But I think we also better remember that God doesn't want us just to bring them to church. He wants us in their life as well and that you have the truth of the gospel that you can share as well. And today as we, we close this service, I ask this question, who is it you marginalize? Who is it God is speaking to you today about that he wants your perspective to change? A lot of times we resist some of that because I'm not that person, I'm not that way, but I gotta tell you, all of us have brokenness in our life. Jesus was an uncommon friend. The result of him meeting with that one lady at a well led much of an entire village that came and over the next two days as they asked Jesus to stay with them, it says that many people came to faith. You never know what one, one designated moment by God will do in people's families and lives. Would you stand with me?